So today we begin a new short series looking at four essential elements of Christian discipleship. Belonging, believing, becoming, and beautifying. Um, The Bible teaches us that to be a Christian means to be a disciple. And a disciple is really just another word for a student, a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus in the school of life who's dedicated to learning from him so that they can become like him. That's what the word Christian actually means, becoming a little Christ. And so Christianity is not a hobby. It's not a weekend social club. It's a lifelong journey of walking with the master so that we can become like him and share in the life that he has with the father. And we have it in an instant, and yet that's shaped in us over a lifetime. And so following Jesus means belonging to him. It means believing him, not only believing in him, but believing him, uh, becoming like him, and joining in his mission of redeeming the world to the glory of God. And so we're going to look at each of those four aspects over the coming weeks. But today we start with the topic of belief. And as soon as we start talking about uh, Christian belief, we immediately run into some questions. It seems like every year I read more and more surveys that say uh, less and less people, at least in Europe, uh, or actually maybe only in Europe, say that they no longer believe in God, they have no religious beliefs, no religious affiliations. Um, And so... What is the place of Christian belief, of Christian faith, in what seems to be an increasingly skeptical culture? Is what we believe really important, or is it more important how we live, what we do? Should uh, should Christians continue talking about their faith in that context, or, uh, and if so, how should they go about doing that? And so I felt led to this passage in uh, Acts 17 because it, the, the, the context that we read here it really resonates with our situation today. Um, Athens in, in the day of, of the Apostle Paul, it was the world's center of learning. And even today, when you think of ancient Athens, you think of it as the, the birthplace of philosophy. This is where all the great thinkers, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, this is where they'd come to debate and propagate their their philosophy, uh, especially in a place called the Agora, the marketplace, which is exactly where we see Paul um, going and talking. And in a world filled with gods, uh, the Greeks and the Romans had thousands of gods. Um, In that world filled with gods, Athens was the place that was famous Uh, for where the philosophers no longer believed in the gods. It was famous for its skepticism. They not only didn't believe, they scoffed at the gods. And so it was probably the most skeptical place you could find in the Roman world. And that's the very spot where we see Paul speaking publicly and personally and privately about his beliefs. And so I think this passage has a lot to tell us about living today in a skeptical culture, and especially in what they tell us is Europe's most atheistic nation. Um, So there's a huge amount 
we could cover in this passage, uh, and I just want to keep it simple. So I'm going to talk about three things. Uh, Why is belief important? How do we talk about belief? How do we share belief? And what do we believe in? So why is belief important? Um, I think in in the context that we live in here, in, in a skeptical culture, it would be easy to say that people should steer clear of divisive beliefs. They, uh, you know, the old saying is, it's, it's not polite to talk about politics or religion. And it's not polite because people have very different beliefs. And so a lot of people would say, what's better to do is really just to focus on what really matters at the end of the day, which is what you do, how you live. It's all about at the end of the day, being a good person, right? And so doesn't the Bible say faith without works is dead? And uh, doesn't it emphasize um, living it out and not just hearing about it, being doers of the word? And so it's a, it's a common saying I've heard a lot, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. But on the other hand, you might say, well, aren't we saved by faith alone and not by our actions? Isn't it always being repeated, uh, you know, every Sunday that we can't earn our way to God? It's all about faith in Jesus alone. So how do those two things fit together? And it seems to me like the church swings from one side to the other, um, depending on the cultural moment or, or our particular traditions. And if you really want to get into a great kind of investigation of of how those two things fit together, I encourage you to go to the website, look up the sermons that Drew preached through the book of James, um, and, and you can find out all about that. But the essential truth that we come to is the Bible doesn't tell us either or, it tells us both and. It says faith and action, belief, and good deeds are two sides of the same coin. Wherever one is present, the other will also be present. That's the way it is because we can't help it. We always live what we actually believe. You can't help but live out your actual beliefs. When you truly believe something, it inevitably is shown in your life. Because to believe something, this is, a, this is a definition from Dallas Willard. He says, to believe something is to live as if it were true. And so if your actions go against your spoken beliefs, it doesn't show that you don't believe. It just shows what you actually believe. And so it reminds me of Jesus' words in Luke 6. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And then don't do what I say. If you identify yourself as a Christian, which means you believe Jesus is your teacher, your master, your Lord, that's what being a disciple means, that he's your God, and then you refuse to do what he says, it reveals that there's an underlying belief that actually I know better. Actually, I'm Lord of my own life. And somehow the world and many, many churchgoers, I think, have come to this strange idea that 
If you simply believe that God exists and you're a reasonably good person, then it'll, it'll all be all right in the end. And so really, it's at the end of the day, the most important thing is being a good person, doing the right thing. But that's exactly what James talks about in, in, in his letter. Uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, you have faith, you say you have faith, for you believe that there's one God. And I love the sarcasm here. <laughs> he says, good for you. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder with terror. Good for you. Um, that's why Martin Luther, who famously, he, was, he, was, he resurrected the idea of salvation is by faith alone. Through, um, by grace alone. But he said, we're saved by faith alone, but not by faith which stays alone. How can you really believe God is God if you don't listen to anything he says, is the question. So mere belief can't be enough because mere belief isn't even really belief. Now, I've said all that, and having said all that, I think it's, it's also easy to emphasize on the other end, to emphasize action so much that belief ends up getting sidelined. It becomes kind of relegated to personal opinion or it's just not spoken of. And it is absolutely vital to live a life of action, to live out the gospel where, where that, uh, that the truth of the gospel is evident in what we actually do, the way we lead our lives. But if you take it too far, I think that can become another comfortable place of simply being a good person with nothing distinctively Christian about it. So preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. It's a great exhortation, and it's true until you begin to use it as a great excuse. <laughs> so it's true that words without actions lack power, but I think on the other hand, actions without words lack meaning. Actions, sorry, words without actions lack power, but actions without words lack meaning. The Christian life is not just a game of charades, or charades if you're British. Uh, in other words, where it's all actions and no words. Our beliefs have to be evident in our actions and our words, because it's only in our words that other people can enter our heart, enter our motivations, um, only through another person's thoughts and words can you access why they do what they do. And so there's, there's a time and place for both. Sometimes the actions have to come first so you can earn the right to say anything. But eventually there has to be some balance. It made me think, imagine if Jesus had come to the world, he was born in a manger, lived his life, died on the cross, resurrected, and never said a word about it. We had no scripture. We might have some great historical examples, some inspiring stories to read about, uh, you know, somehow, but we would have no idea what it actually all meant. Imagine if God had just created the world and just left it at that, never spoken through uh, the covenants and the prophets and scripture. Um, we would never know we, we, would, we would realize that there's a God out there, but we'd never be able to realize, know his heart. 
We'd never be able to know him personally. And so thank God that he didn't do that. He didn't leave us without his word. And in fact, when you see, uh, when you look at God's word, you can see the perfect marriage between action and words. Because God's action is his word. Jesus is called the word of God, the logos. He's the living, Jesus is the living activity of God. Anything that God does is through Jesus. He says everything that was created was made through the word. God spoke the world into being. His, it, uh, Hebrews says his word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Um, God's word always accomplishes what it sets out to do. It's the perfect marriage between action and word, between meaning and deed. And so that's the reason why I, as I was preparing this, it filled me up with confidence because um, speaking the word of God is necessary because it's his word that has power. My words, you know, if you've ever preached and you get up and you spend a long time preparing, as soon as you stand up here, you feel like this is a load of rubbish. All that work I've put in that's come out of my little pea brain uh, is absolutely worthless if it's not based in God's word. If it's not coming out of his eternal, powerful word that always accomplishes its, its purposes. And a lot of times we as Christians, we feel too weak to um, speak about our faith because maybe we don't feel powerful enough or authoritative enough or knowledgeable enough. But thankfully, what we proclaim is not us. It's him. And so I remember when it, it kind of, it dawned on me, having grown up as, as you know, as a, as a Christian, um, when it dawned on me that sharing my faith is not just about sharing my own testimony or sharing my own understanding or sharing even my own passion. It's about sharing Jesus. And so even though I'm messed up and I don't understand everything and I, I, um, I'm not as passionate as I should be, I'm not offering the gift of myself. I'm offering the greatest gift I could possibly give, which is him. And so I'm not confident enough to share myself with you because that is bound to disappoint you. And some of you have already tipped over the verge of disappointment with me. Uh, But if I know that I'm offering him, what a confidence we can have to say, I'm offering you something that I know will not disappoint you. If you can get him, you will not be disappointed. And so that's exactly what Paul says in, in the book of Romans. I, I just, reading these words, and I'm about to read Romans 10, uh, 8 to 14, it just filled me up with so much joy when I read this. He says, the word of faith that we're preaching, the, 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 the thing that we're telling you uh, is trustworthy, that you should have faith in, that is this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 
For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And then come the famous words. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. And so the word of Christ, the message of Christ is absolutely essential. Our actions back it up. But they have to go hand in hand. And so that's, that's, that's our first point. Why is, uh, why is belief important? But then secondly, I want us to look at how do we talk about our beliefs? And um, this, this sharing of the word uh, along with a life that's living it out, that's exactly what we see Paul doing in Athens as he traveled around the Roman world. Um, he was doing good deeds. We see him healing the sick. We see him raising money, vast sums of money for the poor. Um, but everywhere he went, he was preaching the good news. He was preaching about Jesus. And you see him in all sorts of different venues doing that. He was in public venues. He was in private conversations. He was in homes. He was in prisons. He was uh, in courtrooms. Um, and one of the genius things that you see in Paul, and I absolutely love this in the book of Acts, go through and just um, look at all his speeches that he gives. Every single presentation of the gospel that Paul gives is tailored perfectly for the audience that he's speaking to. I think that's one of the genius things that we see about him, his ability to translate the message of Jesus to every audience. He never presents it in kind of a one-size-fits-all way. And in Athens, we see here, um, he's meeting probably the most philosophically educated and spiritually skeptical audience that he could have possibly met with. Which, by the way, sadly, wasn't half as difficult an audience as the biblically educated and religiously skeptical people that he just left in the previous town. Um, But in Athens, he speaks with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and they were so bemused with what he had to say that they invite him to talk to their ruling council, the Areopagus, uh, that met on, on Mars Hill, and you can go there um, in, uh, in Athens today. So the Epicureans and Stoics, um, we won't get too deep into their philosophy, but they were the leading schools of thought um, at the time. And in really broad brushstrokes, the Epicureans were materialists. They didn't believe in anything but the physical matter of the universe, And so they were essentially atheists. They didn't believe in any supernatural involvement in the world. They said that life was all about pleasure and getting rid of superstition. And on the other hand, you had the Stoics, who they were 
what's called pantheists, that God was in everything and uh, in everyone and part of everything. God is everything. And so their goal was to live in harmony with, with nature, to live in harmony with the divine principle that permeated all of existence. And so those, those two worldviews that were opposed to each other were both completely opposed to Paul's Jewish, biblical worldview. And so as he walked through the city, we see him looking at all these idols, all these different worldviews and worship going on, and it says he was, he was infuriated uh, or greatly troubled is the mild way to put it. But actually in the Greek, it's, he, was, he was infuriated by what he saw. So how does he respond? It's quite a common response of Christians to be infuriated by the things that go on in the world, uh, especially if you're in America. Uh, but sorry, that's, that's, I am American, so don't feel particularly offended. Uh, but it's interesting to me observing how conversations go on from afar Uh, (laughs) But how does he respond? Well, Paul responds by sharing the message of the true God. And that sharing of the message, we already said, that's essential. But what we also see here is how the message is shared is essential. Paul doesn't storm in and just, uh, you know, dump his gospel fury on everyone. Uh, he didn't just set up shop on the street corner and kind of preach fire and brimstone, although he does talk about judgment. Um, and I think it's, it's, it seems to be that some people think their job is just, because they know we have to preach the word, well, my job is just to dump it on people and just deal with it. Well, I've done my job. See you later. Um, That's not what you see Paul doing. That's not what you see God doing, actually, because God, even God, speaks to us in ways that we can understand. He uses images that fit into life that we can comprehend. Um, That's the point of language, to carry meaning. And to carry meaning, it has to be understood. And to be understood, it has to be translated. And uh, C.S. Lewis said, the best way to know if you've understood your own meaning is if you're able to translate. So how does Paul translate the message of Christ? And the first thing that we see is in, the, in his manner. He reaches his audience by his manner, by his tone. Uh, one of Selena and I's old professors used to say, uh, beware of cutting people's ears off. Beware of coming in and offending your audience right off the bat and, and stopping them listening to anything you have to say after that. Um, losing your audience before you even begin. 1 Peter 3.15, the famous verse about apologetics, it says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that you have and do so with gentleness and respect. And when Paul speaks to his audience in the Areopagus, he begins with respect. He addresses them by the proper term that that was befitting the the rulers of a a Greek city. He says, men of Athens, which is, that word was only used of of the the free uh, citizens um, of the, you know, ruling, ruling class. And so Paul uses the correct terms. He uses the right forms of of address and oration for for the culture. And so 
a little bit of what that shows us is if you're in a culture that places high value on titles, uh, on decorum, being respectful and gentle means using the right titles, the right decorum, even if you know that actually we're all equal before God and the titles don't ultimately, ultimately mean anything. On the other hand, if the, if the, the culture, the person you're speaking to values equality and informality, then don't insist on titles and formalities. Um, speak in terms that the culture can understand. And so the second way that we, that we see Paul uh, sharing his beliefs effectively with that audience is by the method he uses. And it says he was in the marketplace reasoning with whoever was there. And that word reasoning is dialogome, uh, if that's how it's said, uh, which is where we get the word dialogue from. And this wasn't simply preaching at people. This means it was speaking with people. Um, If you try to simply preach at people in a very different worldview, it gets you nowhere pretty quickly. And Tim Keller points out that that word, uh, dialogome, it, it meant more than just a conversation. It was actually a particular way of reasoning that today we call the Socratic method. And the Socratic method, um, it meant acknowledging that there's a deep difference in worldview. But rather than criticizing that worldview from the point of my worldview, because it's really easy to make any other worldview look silly from the point of your own worldview. Um, But what it meant was entering in to the other person's point of view sympathetically, trying to think like them, trying to understand them. So it's not ridiculing. It's trying to deal with them from within their own framework of understanding. And so you see Paul here doing this expertly. Right from the start, he begins... Uh, right from the start of his address to the Areopagus, he's building bridges. Um, so he, he uses the right forms of, of address, but he also, he begins with what looks like uh, a compliment. He says, men of Athens, I see that you're very religious in every way. And it's, it's kind of ambiguous because that word religious can also mean superstitious. And so, um, to the Epicureans who absolutely hated superstition, they were, you know, they kind of smirked with him. Oh yeah, we're real religious. Uh, and, and to the rest of the people, um, it would just seem like a compliment. But Paul is kind of, uh, he's, he's straddling these two sides of his audience. And he goes on to make these a few statements that they would have thoroughly uh, amen. And here's, there, there's, a, there's a function in our presentation software that I've always wanted to use, so I want you to uh, join in with this. Okay, so he says, God does not live in temples made by man. And everyone said, amen. amen. Uh, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Amen. amen. He made from one, na- from one man every nation of mankind. Amen. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Amen. And all these statements, we'll try that another time, maybe a bit more practice. (laughs) 
We're not Pentecostal enough here. Um, uh, <laughs> um, so what you see is he, he's making these statements that fit right in with exactly what they already believed. It's kind of what like uh, John does in the Gospel of John when he talks about the Logos, which was a Greek idea. Um, uh, he doesn't go in speaking Christianese. He doesn't use Jewish kind of theological, uh, cultural terms. He speaks to them in their own language, in their own forms of, of understanding. And the next thing is he uses their own authorities. Now, it might seem odd that uh, even though all through this speech is, is um, deep biblical thought, the whole thing rests on, on profoundly biblical thought, Paul's text for this sermon is not from the Bible. It's actually from pagan poetry that was dedicated to Zeus. It was dedicated to, to pagan gods. And so, um, that's a little bit strange, but what it shows us is the Bible is the source. The Bible is the guide. Everything needs to be weighed against scripture and, and founded on biblical principles. But to reach an audience effectively, it's no good coming in and just using your own authorities, your own sources that your particular group finds convincing. But Rather, it's about using authorities, using sources that your audience finds convincing. Looking for overlaps with the gospel that are found in sources that they already consider authoritative. And so um, I've personally heard some absolutely brilliant talks um, uh, geared towards Muslims that actually take the Quran as their text. And you might say, whoa, whoa, whoa. But it's doing this exact principle that um, uh, even within their own authorities, you can see the desire for God. You can see God's truth, God's light coming through because all truth is God's truth. And so wherever truth is found, it can be acknowledged and encouraged. And so that doesn't mean Paul agreed with their worldview. On the contrary, but he was able to recognize that refracted light of God's truth even in their own uh, scriptures. And so every person is made in the image of God with the same need for God. And so it's not surprising for us to see that every culture and worldview contains some expression of that desire for God, contains some refracted light from God's light. He points out things that desires in that worldview that can only truly be satisfied by the God of Scripture. Longings for meaning, for purpose, for goodness, for love can only be ultimately founded in the God who's the eternal, loving relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's, I mean, we could spend a whole series just on that one statement. Um, but he so he, he, he makes statements that agree with their philosophy. He uses their authorities. But here's where the Socratic method kind of kicks in. This is where the edge comes in. Because um, Paul enters in on their terms, their worldview, their authorities. But he doesn't leave it there. He enters in so that 
he can point the way out. And he's doing what Francis Schaeffer did so brilliantly uh, in the 20th century. He's highlighting their deepest needs and desires for God and then exposes how their worldview is ultimately unable to satisfy those desires. And so what it's about is pushing the worldview to its logical conclusions, pushing, pushing the, the, uh, the assumptions of that worldview to the breaking point. Um, and that's what Paul does. So after, right after his audience has just amened all these, all these statements um, about God not living in human buildings and not being served by human hands and being the maker of humanity, he flips the script and says, if that's all true and you believe that, then why are you worshiping images that you yourself have made? Why are you worshiping, if God doesn't dwell in human buildings and he's not served by humans and he's, make, he's the maker of all, all humanity, then why on earth would you think that you can worship something that you've made with your own hands? Something made of gold or silver or stone. Um, how can we be God's offspring and then create gods in our own image to worship? And so he takes this, this true and good and, and honest desire for worship and he shows uh, that what they really long for is the true object of worship, the true God, the living God. And so that's really an essential point for today that people think that worship is reserved for um, religious people, that belief is something that religious people have. But the truth is everybody worships. Everyone bases their life on statements, on uh, statements of faith in one way or another. We all base our lives on something. We all live for something. We all live as if to say, if I don't get that, then I might as well not be here. And that is worship. And so this leads me to the last point. What do we believe in? What do we believe in? What was Paul proclaiming? So, uh, there's a lot in this, but one, one of the major things is that Paul majored on the majors. Paul didn't go in discussing the finer points of young earth creationism or of Christian political philosophy. He goes in proclaiming the essence of everything, Jesus and the resurrection. That is the core of the faith. It doesn't mean that there's not a million other things that are very, very important. But this is the absolute bedrock, the core of the faith, because without Christ, there's no Christian. And without the resurrection, there's no Christ. That's why Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because if you have Jesus, if you belong to him, if he's your Lord and you believe in the hope of the resurrection, you are part of the new heaven and the new earth. You are part of the kingdom of God and you will be saved. And so Christians grow. We grow in understanding. We grow in obedience. We grow in passion. But we shouldn't set the bar higher than God sets it. It begins 
before anything else with belonging to Christ, calling him Lord and trusting him with your heart, putting your hope on him. It begins with worshiping the true and living God. And so the whole reason that Paul enters into that language and worldview of the Greeks was to communicate the Christian story, the Christian worldview, the gospel worldview. And every worldview has to answer. There's a lot of questions that worldviews answer um, because we can't live life without answers to some of the fundamental questions. But three of the, the basic questions that every worldview answers is, what is the world supposed to be like? Uh, what went wrong with the world? Or what is wrong with the world? And how can it be fixed? So the Epicureans believed that the world was just material. It was supposed to be enjoyed uh, with just maximum pleasure because this is all there is. But, so that's the answer to the first question. Uh, what held it, what's wrong with the world? Well, what's wrong with the world is we're so superstitious and we fear divine retribution. And so the answer, the way to fix it is by detaching yourself from all that silly superstition and seeking pleasure. So that was the Epicurean gospel. The Stoics believed that the world was supposed to be at one with God, uh, at one with peace and nature and the divine. And what held us back from that was all these local little uh, gods and temples because God is in everything. And so the, 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 the way to fix it is to reject all those local gods and live in harmony with uh, the divine nature. And so that was the kind of stoic gospel. And as you can see, those worldviews, those gospels are alive and well today by different names, as well as many others. How does Paul answer those three questions? Well, he says, humanity was made to seek God, to worship God. That's the way the world was supposed to be. And that even though we all desire him, we're held back and separated him, separated from him. What's wrong with the world is we were worshiping the wrong things. And so if you want to read Paul's detailed exposition of that point, what he says is wrong with the world, read Romans chapter one uh, to three. He says, what's wrong is with the world is we've traded the truth for a lie. We've traded the real and living God for false images that end up disappointing us. And so what is the way to fix it is to worship the true God again. And the only way to do that is through Christ. That he says, God has appointed a man as Christ, the, the, the judge of the universe and proven and validated him by raising him from the dead. That the way to worship the true and living God again, to come back to him, to set the world to rights, is through Christ. It's in Christ. And so our way back to God is to be united with Christ. It's all about him and his resurrection. That is the good news. That's what you see Paul, no matter what else or how he presents it, he always presents the resurrected Jesus. He says, this is the hope 
This, this is the hope that I have. And here's the reason for the hope that I have because God resurrected him. Um, and so that is the good news. That is what we proclaim with all our hearts and wisdom and gentleness and respect. And sometimes people say Paul was, um, Paul was a failure in Athens. And so he never preaches like that again in, in, the, in the book of Acts. But um, it's not true because you see in his letters that he speaks in, in very much the same way to other Gentile groups. Um, but it's not only that. At the end of this, this speech, in the, the highest you know, Greek center of learning and philosophy, it says several people came away with faith. Several people came away as followers of Jesus that day, including Dionysius, who is a member of the council. And some people say he went on to become the bishop of Athens. And, and Damaris and other people. And so all of this is to say, our, what we believe and, and sharing what we believe is absolutely essential along with a life that gives evidence of that truth. And as we're faithful in proclaiming that news, doing our best with that example that we've seen in Paul and the rest of scripture, doing our best to communicate with understanding, with respect, with love, with gentleness, that as we do that, even the, the, uh, the, the toughest potential audiences, God, God's word is effective. God goes out and does uh, what his word has gone out to accomplish. And so that can give us confidence, that can give us faith, uh, uh, that God will do what we're unable to do, which is break through the hardness of the human heart and, and plant that seed in us that we will trust him and live with him and be transformed. And so uh, let's pray together as, the, as the, the, the worship team comes back up. Um, next week, Drew's going to be going into the, the overlapping points of uh, belonging, of, um, of becoming, and also what it means to beautify, to be joined in Jesus' mission of redemption in the world. So, Father God, um, Lord, I'm just so grateful for this, uh, this passage that we've read today, Lord, that, that we can have hope and confidence in you even in the face of skepticism, even in the midst of uh, hard-heartedness that scoffs at the idea of, of who you are and your resurrection, Lord. Um, Lord, I pray today that you would, you would fill us with a joy and confidence in being able to share your gift, the gift of your gospel, the gift of you. Lord, that we believe it in our hearts, we confess it with our mouths, Lord, and that you would you would cause that word, that seed to grow in this city, Lord, in our families, in our kids, in our, uh, our parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins that don't know you yet, Lord, that you would use each of us to boldly speak your word with gentleness and respect, Lord, and that you would have your way in Jesus' name. Amen.